right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the Reformed Rant. Today is March 11th, and this is episode number 12. And today I am ranting about presuppositional apologetics. Um, We've got some noise being made by certain young uh, apologists, we'll call them. And I, you know, just so you guys know, I, I think every Christian is an apologist, technically speaking, right? In the, in the pure sense of what it means to be a Christian. I'm not terribly fond of setting up an office in the church, similar to that of a teacher or a pastor or an evangelist. I just, first of all, don't think that's biblical. I don't see the office of apologist anywhere in the scripture. I see where the scripture mandates that every Christian should be always ready to place their faith on the line and provide a reason for the hope that is that is in them. I think my 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 opinion of what's going on in the the world of apologetics in the Christian church is <clears throat> that it is not unlike merchandising the truth of God's word. And I, I want to be careful here because I, there's a lot of good folks who are involved in this kind of work. And I, so I don't want to I don't want to throw it entirely under the bus. Uh, but I am going to say this about the field. Number one, it is far too crowded with all kinds of distractions, distortions, and and nonsense. Um, and two, it is unnecessarily complicated. And it's complicated by people who have all kinds of motivations for complicating it. Some of those motivations are uh, pure, uh, good intentions. Others, maybe not so much. When you start merchandising everything and you start turning everything into a dollar or looking for a way to turn everything into a dollar, you start to lose me. I'm That is really something that turns me off big time. Um, other people are involved in this field um, because of how it makes them feel about themselves. Uh, the field of Christian apologetics is overcrowded with uh, intellectual snobs who are more interested, many, many, many of them, uh, maybe even most, who want to put their intellect on display. And that makes them feel powerful. It makes them feel good about themselves. And uh, this is a, a trait, a sinful trait, in many of us that uh, really needs to be uh, disciplined, mortified, put to death. So what I want to do today is just walk through, as simply as I can, what's called the presuppositional method of apologetics. Now, I want to say this about this method. Um, I believe that this method is the most consistent method, the most faithful method of apologetics in terms of uh, what a Christian is supposed to do. And and I believe it is the most consistent method of apologetics given the core teachings of the Christian faith. 
it is the approach that I think is in line and consistent with what Christianity uh, sets itself up to be. That is, that it that it claims to be. Christianity makes certain claims. This method for defending those claims, I think, is the most consistent with those claims that Christianity is making. So the method for defending the faith should be a method that is consistent with the teachings of the faith that it's defending, if that makes sense. And I think presuppositional apologetics um, accomplishes that. So we're going to turn our attention to this method and uh, we're going to start off with a brief discussion on uh, a background of Cornelius Van Til, and then we'll jump into some of the other methods of apologetics, and then we'll I'll close out with a little bit more meaty substance on presuppositional apologetics. But I'm going to try to keep it as simple as I possibly can, even though I know that uh, keeping apologetics simple is just going to be so offensive to some of the self-proclaimed apologists running around on the Christian landscape. So let's let's rant. All right, Cornelius Van Til was a Dutch Christian philosopher and a Reformed theologian. He is credited as being the originator of modern presuppositional apologetics. He was born in 1895, lived until 1987, educated at Calvin College, Princeton University, Calvin Theological Seminary, and Princeton Theological Seminary. If you were going to buy one book... And I would recommend if you're interested in apologetics, you should own all of Van Til's books. But if you're going to buy one book from Cornelius Van Til on uh, Christian apologetics, I would encourage you to to purchase uh, Defense of the Faith. Cornelius Van Til said, if we are to defend Christian theism as a unit, it must be shown that its parts are really related to one another. We don't piecemeal Christianity. We begin with the Bible, we continue our argument using Scripture, and we end with Scripture. Um, and this is really uh, part of the, the unique feature of presuppositional apologetics. The other methods that are employed um, in this field of, of ministry it, do not uh, take that approach. In fact, one of the criticisms that I offer of some of the other methods is that they do not emphasize the Scripture enough. Okay, So I said earlier that there's, there's some unnecessary complexity that, is, that exists in this field. And if you look at some of the younger, new guys coming into this field, uh, there's almost a braggadocious attitude uh, that just seeps through um, in terms of um, intellectual pride. And it's, it's a real problem because pride in any form is sinful. And so uh, we want to bring arguments to bear that come from Scripture 
uh, because we believe, as as a presuppositional apologist, those of us who are in this field, I believe that the the power of God to change and persuade men of the truth of Scripture uh, is found in Scripture. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. And that's what we're after here. Uh, We want to proclaim the gospel. We want to glorify God, honor the name of Christ, edify believers, and speak truth into the lives lives of this dying dark world. That's really what what this is a what this is about. So I'm going to walk through a brief introduction. Uh, going to give you just a quick run through of of history uh, in terms of who's who in the world of apologetics. Uh, then we're going to talk about uh, some other apologetic methods, but it's going to be fast. I want to move through this. This is just an overview. This is not uh, intended to be a lecture on presuppositional apologetics. This is an overview. It's kind of um, wetting your whistle, if you will. It's just giving you a taste of what it is, uh, so to speak, uh, and then uh, I'm going to do. I'm going to talk about the the presuppositional two step, and then the transcendental argument for the existence of God using an example. So Christian apologetics is the vindication of the Christian worldview, the vindication of the Christian worldview. The Bible commands Christians to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in them uh, to anyone who would ask. Now. Just for your information, I am in the process of putting together an exegetical um, piece on First uh, Peter chapter three, verses eight through twenty-two, or at least eight through twenty, and I am going to walk through that in the near future on the podcast because First Peter three fifteen is the most popular text of scripture used to support this field uh, of apologetics as a a field in and of itself, almost as if it is separate from other fields. And unfortunately, even men like Van Til contributed to that kind of thinking. I think that that kind of thinking is, is an improper way to think about Christian apologetics. I do not believe the Bible separates it out or carves it out from evangelism and gospel proclamation and just basically sharing the gospel with people. I think that's a mistake. And the reason I'm doing uh, the exegetical study on 1 Peter 3 uh, and that I'm going to talk about it is because I want to point out uh, just exactly how 1 Peter 3.15 has come to be so misused and in many cases uh, one of the most abused scriptures uh, verses in in the uh, entire New Testament. So God uses apologetics for his glory, but that does not mean that method doesn't matter. That doesn't mean you can just throw it out there without thinking about what you're doing. Okay. Now, by the nature of giving an answer... Uh, For the reason of the hope that is in us, Christian apologetics entails gospel proclamation. And there's a lot of people in this field uh, who are self-proclaimed apologists uh, doing apologetics who separate the gospel or who separate gospel proclamation from 
Christian apologetics, and that is absolutely, positively uh, not uh, in accord with what we see in Scripture. There's nothing in Scripture that would support that kind of thinking. So if you're thinking that way, you should stop thinking that way and begin to to think a little bit better about what gospel proclamation is and what Christian apologetics is, I will show in a later podcast that they are one and the same. That said, God uses apologetics to save sinners, and he does this because, again, apologetics done faithfully always entails the gospel. If you hear someone give a a one-hour lecture on apologetics and they're not talking about the gospel, and uh, and they're not giving scripture. Well, then something isn't quite right about what they're doing, unless they're just talking about apologetics. Uh, if someone is standing up doing apologetics, you should hear the gospel. You should hear scripture. Uh, you shouldn't hear uh, all these. Uh, philosophical arguments, all these the empirical historical evidence and, and these inferences and implications and so forth without hearing the Word of God. You should hear the Word of God. If you don't, something is terribly wrong. Now, uh, there are several methods that people take to, uh, to uh, defending the gospel. And I'm not saying that uh, you can't... I'm not saying that you can't include the gospel in these methods. Each of these methods should contain the gospel, even though I think uh, these methods, most of them are misguided. Most of them are out of step with the core teachings of Christianity and uh, are inconsistent with what the Christian faith claims. That does not mean that you cannot build the gospel into these methods. You certainly can, and you should. Even if you don't like the presuppositional method, you should always build the gospel into your apologetic. And uh, you know, even saying that feels wrong because the very fact that you're opening your mouth to do apologetics should very naturally involve uh, the articulation of the gospel. All right, so... If we go back in history and we look at the Christian church, just run through the men who were involved to one degree or another um, in the practice of defending the faith. And we go all the way back to the New Testament. And one of the most notable defenses of the Christian faith was the Apostle Paul. He was constantly defending the gospel, constantly proclaiming and defending the gospel. Acts chapter 17, one of his most notable sermons to the uh, Areopagus uh, in Athens, and it was a brilliant proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was also uh, his apologetic, and so they were one and the same. And then we had this, the, we had this one of the earliest apologists, um, in the early second century, we think, a man by the name of Aristides, and he was one of the first Christian apologists that we have record of. And then, of course, the greatest apologist of the second century, Justin 
martyr. And as we shift gears and move on down through history, we have guys like Athanasius and his defense of the doctrine of God. You have Augustine and his refutation of Manichaeism. You have Anselm and his ontological uh, argument. Then you have Aquinas with the five ways. You have B.B. Warfield, uh, who was a reformed theologian, but classical in his apologetic. And then we come into Van Til, who was the founder of presuppositionalism. And then Van Til student, Bonson, who was probably the best presuppositional, uh, if you want to call him apologist in practice, it would be Greg Bonson. And then uh, John Frame, who was an outstanding theologian, philosopher, and who is an outstanding theologian, philosopher, and apologist. And then uh, guys like Scott Oliphant, uh, at Westminster Theological Seminary and James As Anderson at Reformed Theological Seminary. So we have a long history of uh, these men of God who are standing up defending the, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, proclaiming and defending the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the idea of methods for defending the Christian faith. So we have uh, what's known as the classical uh, method, the evidential method, the cumulative case method, the reformed epistemological method, and then also the presuppositional method. Now, the, the classical approach to apologetics, the classical method uh, basically emphasizes that reason uh, in the form of rational arguments and evidence plays an essential role in our showing Christianity to, uh, to be true. Uh, this approach to apologetics grants what we call epistemic neutrality, which basically means that in order for this method to really be effective and work, that human beings have to be neutral where Christianity is concerned, where Christian theism is concerned, where religious claims are concerned, that there is really nothing there, that they're not predisposed to one side or the other, and that they have this ability to listen to the evidence, listen to the arguments, interpret them properly, uh, and then come to a conclusion on their own as to whether or not Christianity is true or pro highly probably true or not true. Uh, so part of the criticism of, of this approach is that neutrality is an impossibility um, and that class classical apologetics uh, undermines the noetic effects of sin. It disregards the fact that the fall of, of humanity into sin, uh, that, this, that this has affected... Uh, every part of his being, his emotion, his intellect, his will, everything is, in, is, effect, is, is affected by sin, right? And that includes the, the intellect, which is where this evaluation of the so-called evidence is taking place. And Scripture speaks of men, fallen men, unregenerate men, as enemies of God, speaks of the unregenerate mind as being hostile to God, speaks of unbelievers uh, as those whose minds have been blinded by the God of this world. They cannot see, you see. Um, and also describes the unbeliever as having a mind that is not 
unable to understand these spiritual matters because of the effects of sin on the human mind. So classical apologetics with its emphasis on reason and its, in my view, naive view of the the, uh, effects of sin on the human mind, the the mind's neutrality, um, neglects the role of Scripture in apologetic method. And it is if you're going to, if you're going to, to witness uh, true conversion, uh, true persuasion, then you are going to uh, have to rely on the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit as he brings the gospel to bear. So that's the classical method of apologetics. The evidential approach, evidential apologetics, focuses on the historical evidences uh, for the truth of Christianity. It does not argue for God's existence first and then move on to the historical evidence. Uh, So this also, this method also, uh, underestimates the noetic effects of sin and how those affect our interpretation of the historical evidence. Evidences, for example, uh, part of the historical evidence for for the truthfulness of Christianity is the resurrection. Well, you can't get a resurrection unless you're already presupposing that a resurrection is possible. And if you're presupposing that a resurrection is possible, you're already presupposing that God exists in the first place. And that is, I mean, that's really an issue. So think uh, we have to think a little bit better about how we approach this this conversation. And as as far as the 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 other criticisms of evidential apologetics, they're the same as those we made against the classical uh, approach. Uh, human beings are not neutral uh, when it comes to religious claims. Evidence, how we interpret evidence that is presented before us is very much driven by our prior commitments. And if we are unregenerate, we are enemies of God, we're hostile to God, we suppress the truth of God, and since that's the case, we are going to do with the evidence what those prior commitments dictates to us to do with the evidence, right? So to say that there are there's such a thing as just brute facts out there that are uninterpreted facts and that the unregenerate mind can be neutral in how it approaches those facts cuts against Scripture completely. So from my perspective, the distinction between evidential apologetics and classical apologetics is a distinction really without a difference. Let's talk about the next method for apologetics, which is the cumulative case approach. This approach is also known as the inference to the best explanation. This approach gives priority of place to, new, to, to, to natural theology and its arguments. The claim is that Christian theism is like a lawyer's brief, so to speak. Christian theism gives the most plausible explanation once all the evidence is in. So we take all the evidence, we weigh the evidence, and we ask the question, what is the most likely explanation for the evidence that we have? What is the most plausible uh, uh, explanation for uh, why things are the way things are? 
so again, this method does the very same thing that the prior methods do. It extends neutrality to the non-Christian. Now, on top of this, many of these arguments, especially the arguments from natural theology, have been soundly refuted. And so to take an argument that has been refuted and add on top of it another argument that has been refuted and on top of that an argument that has been refuted does nothing to strengthen your case. Right? You have to have arguments that have not been refuted. Maybe one that's weaker and you add another one that's stronger or one that's stronger and you add a weaker or weaker and stronger. But you cannot add arguments that have been defeated and refuted uh, and pile them all up. All you've got is a bunch of arguments that's been defeated. That doesn't strengthen your case, not even a little bit. right? And the other thing that's going on here is we are placing unregenerate human beings pitiful, finite, puny human beings in a position of judging God. And this you won't find anywhere in Scripture. When you think about that, if Christian theism is true, you would never, ever ask a man to sit in judgment of God and of God speaking. You would never, ever do that. So it the method itself is actually inconsistent with core principles of Christianity. If God exists and God is speaking, how dare you sit in judgment of him? How dare you demand God prove something to you? You're a gnat. God has no obligation to do one thing more than what he's already done. And that, that also raises the question that we'll get to a little later of Romans 1, which clearly says that God has made knowledge of himself evident within them. He made sure of it so that they are without excuse. So there's the answer. There is no true defense for anti-theism or atheism or agnosticism. There is no rational justification for the denial that God exists. That's according to Scripture. Now we turn our attention to the Reformed Epistemological Method. Uh, This method rejects the idea that all beliefs everywhere require external evidence to themselves, right? The belief that they do would be a belief that doesn't have external evidence to support itself, so it would be self-defeating. This is kind of why Reformed epistemological apologetics takes this approach, and uh, probably the, the most popular effective man who who is who brings forth this method or subscribes to this method is Alvin Plantinga and he has done uh, he's done the church a great service um, in uh, his uh, warranted series I would buy all three of those books and in fact I would recommend that you you buy everything that Alvin Plantinga writes on this subject because he is brilliant I'm not saying that I agree with everything he says but he has made excellent contributions to this field, and even though his method is not the presuppositional approach, there are a number of similarities and a number of things that he does, Another a number of insights that he brings to this discussion that are extremely helpful and beneficial uh, to us or to anyone who is interested in, in this field.
reasoning, according to Reformed epistemological apologetics, must start somewhere. There must be some truths that we can just accept and reason from. And so the, the question is, why not start with belief in God? Okay, so God has given us an awareness of himself that is not dependent on theistic arguments. Now, what's wrong with this method? I think so far as it goes, there's a lot right with it. Uh, the only criticism uh, of the method, and it's, it's not a small criticism, and I'm not convinced that it's an entirely fair criticism, but you could say that it does not make God speaking in Scripture its starting point, nor uh, place appropriate emphasis on the role of the Holy Spirit and Scripture itself. So that would be the only thing that we would say there needs to be more emphasis on that than there is in, in the system. So now we turn our attention to um, the presuppositional uh, method. I call it the presuppositional two-step. Presuppositional apologetics has uh, at its as its core concern, its central concern, the glory of God in the defense of Christian belief. It begins with God speaking in Scripture as its starting point. That is its epistemic standard, right? Uh, presuppositional apologetics is distinct from the, distinct from from the other methods of apologetics from the standpoint that it is the only approach that openly deals with epistemic normativity from the very start. Apart from God, knowledge or intelligibility is impossible. And the proof that Christian theism is true is because of the impossibility of the contrary, because the contrary involves contradiction. Any attempt to provide for things like uh, uh, rationality, intelligibility, knowledge, logic, morality, um, any of these experiences that are really uncontroversial in nature, uh, they all collapse in on themselves at, when they are when they are critiqued internally. You see, uh, for someone to say, and I'll get into this a, uh, in a little bit uh, more detail, but for someone to say, for example, I have atheists who are constantly saying, "Give me evidence, give me evidence, give me evidence," or they're they're um, claiming that there's contradictions in Scripture. So when someone says to me. Give me evidence for your belief that there is a God, that God exists. My, my typical response back to them is, well, wait a minute. Um, you're, you're telling me, and most atheists, the most plausible form of atheism is naturalism. Okay, That's the most plausible form. Not all atheists are naturalists. Most of them are. So my, my typical response is to say something like this. Okay, you are... Are a naturalist, which basically says that everything that happens in the universe happens as a result of the laws of physics. The impersonal forces of nature uh, are responsible for everything that happens, including the activity in my brain. Okay, that said, if you're going to argue with me that 
a belief requires evidence, that means that you believe that there is such a thing as a transcendent belief-forming process that all brains ought to subscribe to. And I would like for you to, within the system of naturalism, account for that idea. Where does that come from? Because it is obvious that all brains are not following that model. And if all brains are just doing what nature itself determines that they do, then where does this idea come from that I should, sub, I sub, I should subject my beliefs to your model? Wouldn't it follow that whatever nature's doing in my brain, the way that it's doing it, is equal to whatever it's doing in your brain, even though it's doing two different things, which really doesn't make a lot of sense, but I'm not the naturalist in the room. The atheist is. That's for the atheist to explain how that's possible. Why would nature do something different in my brain than it's doing in yours? And how in the world, if you are just your brain, could you ever look at me and say that my brain is the one that's warped, the one that's abnormal? See, this implies normal. This implies normativity. You can't get normativity in brain functionality from naturalism if you hold to naturalism because there is no normal brain. There are just millions of brains and nature doing what nature does in each one of them. Right? It shatters the possibility of genuine knowledge. Now you can believe whatever you want. So, Let's continue. Presuppositional apologetics begins with this internal critique of the non-Christian worldview, which is kind of what I was just doing. Uh, and then, of course, once it explodes that non-Christian worldview or demonstrates the ir irrationality or incoherence in that worldview, the second step is to demonstrate the truth of, the, of Christian theism from the impossibility of the contrary. And that's, that's what we're doing. You see. Now, let's just <clears throat> walk through so that you understand presuppositional apologetics employs what's called a transcendental argument. This is a method of argumentation. This is not deduction or induction, even though when you look at the arguments on paper, it may take the form of something like modus ponens. It is not modus ponens. It's doing something very different. And most people who criticize presuppositional apologetics do not get into the components of transcendental arguments. So they think they're critiquing modus ponens and the logic that is, is, is on the paper in front of them. And that is not what presuppositional apologetics is doing. It's employing a transcendental method. And so transcendental argument uh, for God would go something like this. And, and so for X to be the case, Y must be the case. Transcendental arguments are asking the question, what must be the case for a certain state to obtain in order for a certain state of affairs to obtain? What has to be the case? So the transcendental argument for God may say, say something like, for rationality to be the case, God must be the case, all right? Now, the proof for that, you're going to get, this is where we're going to get pushback, right? That's the, that's the major premise in the argument. For rationality to be the case, God must be the case, right? Rationality is the case, therefore God exists. 
the, the, the proof of the truth of that major premise and that argument is that the attempt to account for rationality apart from God reduces to irrationality, making any attempt to account for knowledge impossible apart from presupposing the existence of God. That's what we're doing. And when I, when I walked through that a second ago, talking about the um, um, belief-forming process, epistemic normativity, I, I call it the transcendent belief-forming process because sometimes you lose people when you start saying things like epistemic normativity. And so I try to use street language as much as possible when I'm having these conversations with people so that I don't have to explain all these philosophical terms. And I, I don't use philosophical terms to sound smart. Uh, I know a lot of people think it makes them sound smart, but I'm more, uh, I'm more interested in being effective and having people understand what I'm trying to say. And then that's, not, that's challenging enough for me as it is because I'm, I, I, I'm not that gifted in that area. All right, so tag, you're it. Let's talk about the laws of logic. The laws of logic are necessary truths. They're not reducible to just axioms. Not, they're not just things that we all take, take for granted. Imagine what would happen if everyone decided that the law of non-contradiction is not the case. If everybody on the planet took for granted that it is not the case, you would have a new axiom because it's what everybody takes for granted is not, is not the case. But such a scenario is not conceivable in any way, shape, or form. And it's not conceivable because it's not possible. And it's not possible because you can't get there without the validity and the truthfulness, the necessary truthfulness of the law of non-contradiction itself. The law of non-contradiction is necessary in order to deny its own truthfulness. So you cannot deny it without affirming it. Right? So logic is not a convention. It's not a utility of the human mind. Logic imposes itself on us. It follows then that necessary truths and axioms are not quite the same. Logic cannot, set aside, cannot be set aside without its own employment. Right? The harder you try to fight logic, the more it clobbers you. Right? Any attempt to reduce or place logic uh, aside is self-referentially incoherent and ends in radical skepticism where knowledge is, is impossible. Think about that, right? The atheist is, gonna, is going to, to try and steer clear of this definition of logic. And then, guess what he's going to do? He's going to tell you eventually in that conversation that he doesn't believe the Bible because it has contradictions in it. <laughs> Wait a minute. You just reduced logic a little while ago to some sort of utility or some sort of pragmatic convention that we could basically set aside. You, you argue that it's not necessary truths. I've had atheists tell me this. It's not necessary truths, even though it's not conceivable that there could ever be a world in which logic doesn't obtain. All right. So the laws of logic are properties of propositions that exist in the mind, and they are necessary, necessary truths. Now, I want to see if I can take you over to a um, comment that 
was was made by James Anderson in his argument in his paper called The Lord of Non of Non-Contradiction in terms of logic. So I'm going to just read the conclusion because I could never say it as well as Anderson says it. He says, in summary, the argument runs as follows. The laws of logic are necessary truths about truths. They are necessarily true propositions. Propositions are real entities, but cannot be physical entities. They are essentially thoughts. So the laws of logic are necessarily true thoughts. Since they are true in every possible world, they must exist in every possible world. But if there are necessarily existent thoughts, there must be, listen, a necessarily existent mind. And if there is a necessarily existent mind, there must be a necessarily existent person. A necessarily existent person must be spiritual in nature because no physical entity exists necessarily. Thus, if there are laws of logic, there must also be a necessarily existent personal spiritual being. The laws of logic imply the existence of God. End quote. So, <clears throat> we could get more into that, but I don't, I'm, I'm not going to have time to do that in this podcast, and maybe we'll, we'll come back to this at a later date. I'm sure we will, because apologetics... Uh, is an area of interest for me, and it's an area of interest for me not in that it is separated from the gospel of Jesus Christ, but because the gospel of Jesus Christ contains within it apologetics, okay? So think of it this way. Apologetics is not an option. Once you open your mouth and you start sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're going to do apologetics right there with it at the same time. You will do apologetics. Right? And if you're going to evangelize and share the truth of the gospel with people, and every Christian has been given this as a mandate, then method matters. Method matters. Presuppositionalism does what it sets out to do. It remains faithful to the biblical text, which is the most important goal of presuppositional apologetics. It dismantles non-Christian worldviews from the inside out. And it demonstrates that God is the necessary condition for rationality by showing that unless we begin with God, human knowledge is indeed impossible. All right. And that is a wrap on my rant and overview for presuppositional apologetics. If you have any questions, you can contact me at reformedreasons.com. If you're listening to this podcast on a mobile device, there is a way for you to leave a message on the mobile device. If you have questions, suggestions, ideas, uh, by all means, please, please, please feel free to share them. And until we rant again, keep the faith, stay in the fight, God bless you. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. BibleThumpingWingnut.com